Welcome to What in the World Language Podcast. I am here today with Abelardo Almazán Vázquez, William Jeppes Amaya, Kia London, and we are at ACFO 2019 in Washington, D.C. So today, today we're going to talk a little bit about Latine, Latinx, Latino, LGBTQ issues, Afro-Cuban issues, and the importance of all this in our classroom and what we can do as educators to better prepare ourselves and equip ourselves as teachers. So who'd like to start? I would like to start by quoting John Dewey. He used to say back then, if we teach our students the same way we taught them yesterday, we are stealing them their tomorrow. I'm saying that because our session called Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latine, an inclusion and social justice approach to our classrooms, was that opportunity to unlearn, relearn, generate the conversations and spark curiosity among many of us educators about what it means to create those uh, safe spaces for our students to talk about identity, to talk about culture, the visible, the invisible, how do we incorporate that in our classrooms, how do we use the core practices from MACFO to make them aligned and to make them accessible to everyone. So that was our session. And one of the important things it was to like recognize what identity is and how we use labels. Like when labels are given to someone, uh, opposite to the contracts when somebody claims an identity and like the different uh, places of power. When the power is uh, put upon you to oppress you because I'm labeling you, I'm dictating who you are and it's taking something away from you, kind of like acknowledging who you're not and the power that you claim when you decide to name yourself, when you claim yourself, so you take, you're restoring that power to yourself and you're like, in, like in, embedding this full identity and recognition of who you are. So that's what we started from when we started thinking about all of the different la labels that the Hispanic and Latino community have going for, for a right. while because we were able to understand that this is for hundreds and thousands of years that we were talking about right. like how colonization has informed how society look at us and then how we can look at ourselves and claim a place at the table and decide and we understand that that's a process yet to be built and construct so the different labels that we have right now we are not going to debank the use of any label right. because all of these labels it means that it's been a specific community that at some point have the need to reclaim their identity. Right. So when we talk about Hispanic, we can talk about Hispanic and just look about from the perspective of this Spain colonizing Latin America, right. because then we have to think about where in the context of the United States and what it meant in the 60s being called Hispanic and like for the first time being counted in the census. And you know, when you're counting the census, there is power about resources that you exactly. will be able to get. And then, so when we talk about Latin and Latinos, Latin America in the 70s, when they claim back all this, um, the farmers movement, 
uh, a term that was coined in the 1800s by the French, trying to give some connection between Mexico and allow to support uh, Napoleon III. So like thinking about all of those things, but now how we use the term Latino, mm -hmm. but then we have to address uh, visibility of communities that have been marginalized for such a long time. Now they're uh, people who are gender fluid, transgender, or gender non-conforming. Right. When you are posing a way to look at themselves just from like masculinity or femininity, what it means to. So now there is this whole new struggle, but we're still looking from the perspective of the colonial, waiting for the Royal Academy of the Spanish language. To acknowledge. To grant, yeah. to acknowledge. You no, can to give us identify as this. Exactly. exactly. It's like a, that place of giving us permission to name ourselves, giving us permission to decide how we talk about ourselves. So as Latinos, we have to think about how we are still enacting the oppression of the colonialized view in education, an Eurocentric view, and how we really empower ourselves, our students, and how we recognize identities that have been washed away. I do want to say in you and you, you all session, I liked your mini lesson, the mini dance lesson, and how you you all made the point of saying, we're not gonna look at this as you're the male and I'm the female, but you are the follower and I will be the leader. And I thought that was wonderful. And that's something that we all can incorporate into our classrooms. I thought that was wonderful. And there's a history behind that because all of this has become a a regular practice in my classes where I teach. I don't only teach uh, Spanish, but I'm also the Latin dance instructor at my institution. And uh, I remember one time when one of my colleagues came to my class and said, like, you know, salsa dancing, machismo, shake it. So that was from a white colleague who came with probably wanting to be funny or, or whatever. But instead of taking offense at that at that moment, instead of like uh, being upset about that microaggression, what I decided to do is to change the narrative and say, okay, I am going to turn things around. I'm going to write a proposal how to teach a Latin dance that also talks about consent, respect, gender roles, and addressing the stereotypes that are associated with Latin dance. And that's how uh, this paper that I've been presenting at uh, some other conference, that Mafala conference in Massachusetts, I presented that and I was fortunate enough to be named the best session at Mafala. Awesome. They sent me to NECFO and I presented this, this at NECFO. Yes. This, it's important, right? And then with the collaboration of um, Maria Lisa Di Stefano, who unfortunately is not here, but the three of us joining forces with William and myself, what we're doing is how do we keep finding these opportunities to disrupt the spaces like that? The salsa session was one way of doing it. And uh, also, it was really intentional for me to dance with William. I wanted people to see that. I want to model that a cisgendered Mexican national is being in a place of like, hey, it's okay. You don't have to be conforming to the roles. You don't have to be following the norms that in some Latin American countries, they That's say like, you're the man, you're the leader, you're the right. woman, you're the follower. Yes. Anyone can be anyone 
And if we align this to the core um, practices from ACFO, that is the interpersonal communication that we're talking about. Right. That is also how all of this happening in the target language, in Spanish. In the target language. May I dance with you? Right. Puedo bailar contigo. Are you okay if I hold your hand? Puedo tomar tu mano. May I touch your shoulder or your hips? Those conversations, when they're happening in Spanish, they're huge moments. And you're modeling, like you said, you are the culture in the room. You establish that narrative. So that was that was commendable that you chose in that moment of that teacher's bias or lack of those microaggressions of saying, oh, salsa, you know, machismo, right? You, you chose to change the narrative and take it back. Yes. And that's important. As teachers, we need to understand that we are the culture in our rooms and what we decide to bring into our rooms, our students see that and model that. So I commend you for dancing and breaking down that machismo norm because like you said, and in, in like Marianismo is a thing where women fit into these roles also, right? You see that a lot in Mexico, so. Right, you, you're, you're, you're completely agree. And that statement, it was uh, intentional but it was revolutionary itself. And I can speak for myself. I'm a gay cisgender man from Colombia that I immigrate from Colombia to the United States in that possibility of like looking for an opportunity to be my full self. Because the, at the time that I immigrated from Colombia, I, I was in a closet. I was a closeted teacher. And that space of like, for me as a gay man, dancing with another man in a public space was unheard of and impossible to be. Like, yes, gay men or lesbian women were dancing with each other in the shadows of the dark, of like a um, like dark alley, uh, like under, like an under culture yeah, yeah. thing, but not in, now. I think they call public. that but on things, the down low. The down, completely, the, the, you're yeah. completely right on that. Like the reality that Spanish, which is my first language, the words that I learned as a child to define my identity, an important piece of myself, were words that carry a power of oppression because the only word I knew in Spanish to name who I was, and I know it's going to sound very strong for some people, it was marica or maricón. And it's a word that itself, it makes you feel like you shouldn't be, you shouldn't exist. Like you can't even say right. that the out in the public it. because the connotation is behind. And it was very interesting for me, like growing up and going to university and learning English, the power that I gained back of using an English term, gay. And actually it's a coin term now in Spanish and everywhere in Latin America, people use the word gay to describe the homosexual identity because the terms in Spanish have this power that do not allow us to use. So being at Actville on a stage with my partner talking about like how two cisgender male, one identifies as a straight, one identifies as gay, can dance together and enjoy that moment of like, acceptance of who we exactly. are and how we're together no and problem interconnected. No problems. No. <laughs> that's, I, think that's, I think that's critical. So uh, any of you could speak to how does that look like in your like classrooms? Like, so once we start to develop an understanding and have empathy and try to like incorporate these inclusivity practices, what do you think that looks like? Because teachers are listening to this podcast. 
what does it look like in their classroom? What would you say to teachers? What is the message? What is the takeaway? How can they, how can they not have that fear of being in the closet? How can they access uh, cultures that are not their own, such as Afro-Cubano, Afro-Latinos, right? What are some of the things that teachers can do? What does it look like? You know what I mean? Well, first I want to ask Kia, what are the things that she have noticed that are not included in the classroom? What, are, what, is, what has sparked her curiosity and why she started this journey? Of um, I will say for me, my story begins uh, when I was growing up at home. My parents actually spoke Spanish to me in the home. Um, those are probably the very first African-Americans that I saw that spoke Spanish to me. And so as I continued through my education, um, in the Spanish language and culture through middle school and high school, I, there was nothing about the African diaspora or even, I don't even remember remotely seeing a person, another person that looked like me in the classroom. Um, and it wasn't until when I went away to go study in Cuba um, in college and I had an opportunity to study in Matanzas, Cuba. And so in Matanzas, that's where you have your hub of um, Afro-Cubanos there. And it was an amazing experience. Um, and for me, just to see another group of people that looked exactly like me, speaking the language, um, hearing their stories um, about you know, where they were living and um, just struggles and victories as well. It was a very, very eye-opening experience for, for me. Um, and it, it connected with my soul because it was almost like something was missing. And then once I was there, um, something connected for me. Um, and it was, it was a very wonderful experience. And there I studied uh, music and dance from Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, a very popular rumba group. Um, they're still doing things now. And that's really how that journey started. Um, and then from there, I had an opportunity to link up with different um, people from different parts of, of Latin America. And we formed a um, group. Um, it was called the Afro-Latin Project. Um, and we did dances. We performed different Afro-Latin dances from Puerto Rico, from Colombia, um, Haiti, um, Cuba. And it was wonderful. And just from those conversations, um, as well as just from the history and the study of those dances, that was really like how that journey started. And that was back in 2003 or so. Um, and since then, I've really been making an effort to make sure that I'm connecting the culture with the African diaspora. Um, I'll never forget there was, um, I had an opportunity where I was teaching um, in the city, I was teaching on the south side of Chicago, and the majority of my students were African American. And I, you know, I thought it was wonderful, this is great. Um, well, they couldn't quite connect with me, you know, and so reason being was because we had different experiences. I grew up in a completely different environment than they did. And so it was then uh, I was talking to an administrator and she said, well, why don't you just take them back historically and link it from there? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like, that's right. And so from there I started using, you know, pictures and, and researching. Um, one of the very first picture uh, that I used was of Soledad O'Brien, um, the journalist. Um, she's Afro-Cubana. And so I would have like a person of the month that we would like focus on and talk about. 
Um, at the time, I believe um, it was Henry Gates um, released a documentary on um, being black in Latin America. And so we would watch like different things like that. And that was the hook because for them, it was just like, well, I don't want to speak, you know, Mexican Spanish. And I'm like, okay, no, this is not Mexican Spanish. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Let's clear this up right now. So, um, and that was really where that journey, you know, started. So it's been like a 13 year journey and, you know, still continuing it now. Um, as much as I can in the classroom with, you know, pictures and, you know, news and, you know, that kind of thing, especially when it comes to reading material. Um, you know, those are a few ways. So, yeah. Christopher, and that's the answer. That's what we're trying to do is like making an awareness that's an educators. We have to question who we are first, who we are, every single piece of our identity. Right. Are we bringing it into the classroom or right. no? And if the answer is no, then why? Because when we like silence or ignore pieces of ourselves, there is a reason behind and we need to understand why. We need to understand what's the curriculum that we're teaching. Who is in that curriculum and who's who being isn't. represented in that curriculum. Exactly. That's a good place and to start and that's a great point. Deconstructing or decolonizing your curriculum. There's a there's a hashtag on Twitter, disrupt text, right? Yes. Yes. And I yes. encourage mm -hmm. everyone to follow that. Because it's like, what are the voices that are have been perpetuated? And then when we think about like we talk about this Eurocentrism, it's like that. Because as Latin Americans, we do have a like part in it too. Because we perpetuate this. Like, which are the writers, the voices, the poets, the musicians, the literature that we use, it always reflects one particular view. So we need to think, and we also need to understand, when you explain about who was in your classroom, that's beautiful. Because we need to think about who are our students and how we are providing. And I'm going to coin here uh, Emily Stiles uh, in 1988, I think, when she wrote... Uh, her, the curriculum as a windows and mirrors. And she talk about the importance of like, who is the mirror to the students and also who is the window. Right. And like there are communities that are constantly being learning through windows. Windows Looking of out. realities of mm -hmm. other because they can see themselves. Exactly. Or communities that only see mirrors. Because they they're not looking at windows because all they see is themselves, but they're not looking at all right. their possibilities. And uh, I'm going to coin now Rudy Sims, who talked about that, but talked about the opportunity of being a sliding door. So what we're doing, what uh, Maria Luisa, Ave, and Kia is doing, and I'm doing, is opening a door. Opening a sliding door that is no longer just the window and the mirror that provides a very passive look into a reflection or through a reflection but a door that opens and it requires a movement because as educators, we require now to move, to open a door for somebody to walk in or for somebody to walk right. out. And the students need to be like present with that opportunity of movement from the place where they are to an opportunity of growth. So that leads into like a good question I have. I noticed yesterday in your uh, presentation that someone gave some pushback and they, they had a question about using these terms of identity and how not only with the RAE, how they give pushback or not accepting, um, but actual uh, people from Mexico and Cuba and anywhere that don't accept Latinx, Latine, Latina, you know, with that roba. Like, what do you say to those those, you had an eloquent answer yesterday, or I can't remember, had an eloquent answer yesterday. Um, 
but can you repeat that? Like, what would you say to those that say, this is not my identity and I refuse? You're bastardizing the language. You're taking the language away from its standard, right? Yeah, because the, the important thing is, like, like, who is granting the power, as I said earlier, in, like, like this colonization view of the world? And, and also, like, a lot of people like to say that we are translator, translating from English into Spanish, so that we're doing, uh, like, a, a colonializing view from English to Spanish. And the reality is there are all these ostracized and marginalized communities in Latin America that for generations, when uh, Abelardo was talking about the Mushas, is historically like indigenous communities that are known as like two spirits. So it's not that this is new, but it is that in this like way that we were socialized, the uh, gender fluid communities, the transgenders were hidden. And now they're claiming, they're reclaiming who they are and how they want people to refer to them. So we are not translating anything. We're just using the language that these communities are using to name themselves. And one of the things that I was pointing out is like when we talk about like uh, pronouns and people say like, oh, inclusive pronouns, they do not exist in Spanish. Neutral pronouns don't exist in Spanish. They say like everything has to be masculine and feminine. And the reality by doing that quick exercise, uh, asking people, oh, so where will you place when you say ella? Oh, yeah, feminine. And then when you say el, oh, masculine. What about yo? Right. So the reality is that neutral pronouns have existed all along. But what we need to think about is why, when we talk about ourselves, it's okay to embrace every single piece of our identities. Or when we're having a conversation with somebody else and we say two, we allow that. But when we are going to talk about a third person, we feel entitled to deny or to give opportunity for people to name who they are. And that's what we need to think about as a reference. And these are communities that existed all along and now they're coming out. They're coming out and they're claiming their identities and maybe the Royal Academy of the Spanish is not backing this up, but that doesn't mean that they're gonna keep on using it. So people ask me, but how do you teach grammar? Oh the same way you are teaching it. Because when I introduce my students, I say, this is the standardized right. grammar. So right now, you will not find a book written using this inclusive pronouns, but it doesn't mean that you will not find it later. Right. Because the people who are claiming this identity, they're gonna be writing about their experience. Exactly. And later on, you're gonna find it in literature. I think that's the missing element that teachers tend to have. They, they think, I have to just teach the standard. No. You can be inclusive and do both, right? And I, I have like a, like, and I know I've been uh, talking too much and I don't want to take all the air, but I, I have a beautiful example. Let's hear it. I've been teaching like every single Spanish teacher gender agreement, yeah, masculine and feminine. And still to today, my uh, eighth graders have a hard time, like, oh, I have to send things back. It's like, yeah, look at the noun here, look at the adjective, oh yeah, it needed to be, oh, it needed to be, ah, it's the ending. My sixth grade class, I decided to be like super explicit about gender pronouns and inclusive gender pronouns. And we have all this discussion and conversation about, I told them these are now recognized by the Royal Academy of the Spanish Language. They're not the standard, but 
I am going to honor in my classroom this identity. And if we are going to talk about a person who does not identify with the binary code of gender, we are going to acknowledge that using uh, inclusive pronouns. And then I have to introduce uh, the grammar, the syntaxes, gender agreement. And so we went on like, a, okay, oh, see, la chica bonita. Oh, yeah, it's, it, it all matches. El chico bonito. Oh, but what happened if I am talking about somebody that does not identify with this binary? And I didn't even have to say anything. Like, oh, you write an E at the end of everything. So, le chique bonite. And I was like, oh. And just by having that conversation, I started noticing that I do not have to ask my students do it. about gender agreement. By providing a third option, they're more concerned and aware to think about it. When there were just the two options, binary, they're like, oh, if it's not one, it's the other. So they will just let it go. But now when there is a third one, they're thinking. And what I've realized is by including this in my curriculum, and giving them the opportunity to think deeply about grammar and syntaxes and how grammar and syntaxes also inform the way we see the world. And we just had uh, Maria Luisa join us. Uh, would you like to contribute? We were talking about your session yesterday and as you can hear so far. Sure, sure. Um, if I can just piggyback a little bit on what uh, William was saying. Um, I am a, a teacher educator, so I work with teachers. I train teachers, pre-service teachers for language, in foreign languages, but also in uh, um, elementary, middle school, and high school um, general teachers. And this is all part of my advocacy work, um, trying to explain how they can do this work disrupting uh, the stereotypes, disrupting the um, establishment in a way that it's also aligned with their standards, with their teacher educator standards, but also the state standards, the common core, the foreign languages, and everything that needs uh, to be provided to the students so they can, for example, obtain their syllable literacy. So I always use examples like uh, from uh, uh, Paulo Freire work, um, where um, education is not a neutral uh, work because we are always making the differences and we can reiterate the, the establishment or we can uh, give the opportunity to, for freedom, to develop you know, freedom in education. At the same time, I, I understand that they are, the teachers work under, con, under the constraint of the standards and, uh, and they are evaluated under that. Um, but I would like them to inspire the work similar to what um, Rigoberta Menchu did. Rigoberta Menchu had to work on the on her Spanish to make sure that the, the civil rights movement in Guatemala was heard in all Latin America. Because she, if she was still talking through her uh, Native American, um, her sorry, her um, original language from the uh, indigenous people of Guatemala, uh, was wouldn't have had the same impact that she would have done with the Spanish. So she used her Spanish as a way to uh, push forward the civil rights movement, push forward the all uh, the equity and injustice uh, that it was done through her um, uh, so people. So that's the importance of that. So, teaching our kids the standard at the same time you're teaching them to be inclusive, right? Right. So, right, exactly. as I mentioned earlier, it's it's not impossible to do both, to recognize one's identity and to teach the standard. 
Exactly. I think what you're doing is great work. We need we need teacher educators, teacher trainers like you, uh, put, pushing our teachers toward this path. Yeah. Great. And one of the things is the assessment. All the students and the teachers will have to work through assessment. So in an, in an official assessment, the use of AES, for example, is not, um, is not accepted. But if the student is able to discuss all the grammar rules and all the grammar differences between female and male and argument and sustain that choice, saying I'm using AES because I'm aware of what a female and male is, not because I'm going against the rule, but because I, it's, a, it's a purposefully um, choice that I make and I want to use this when I talk about individuals. Then I'm also going to show you, because this is what you're asking me to do in this assessment, that I can properly use gender and uh, agreement uh, with nouns and, and adjectives and I'm going to show you that I can do it but I'm not going to I refuse to do this when I talk about identity in uh, you know people so I think there's a new act for I can statement in there somewhere what do you think I can do both right I can I do can. both yes <laughs> exactly that right. yes that amazing so um I guess as we as we kind of wrap up here I had a couple notes from your session yesterday and anyone can speak on this I, I love that notion of uh, neutrality does not exist. Silence is a political statement. I, I think it was you that made that. Um, would anyone like to, how you feel about that? I absolutely agree with it, right? You know, I completely agree. Um, I think that, you know, for some, that might be like a difficult concept because when you step out, you know, you might be the only one. You know, you might be the only one, um, you know, continuing in the direction that we are continuing. But then on the other side, we need we need more. We need more teachers. We need more educators to do that, um, because if we don't continue to do it, then how how are we going to continue to grow and change? It can be uncomfortable at first, but we have to continue to grow and progress and change. You guys feel like uh, ACFL is, is moving quickly, slowly, toward it's, it's being moving. inclusive? It's just moving. It's, it's moving. It's moving. We can really say that uh, in a personal standpoint, um, I do believe that there is the need for educators these days to be more vulnerable. I don't know how much spaces for us to be honest with ourselves that the moment we say we don't know it's okay the moment that we say i didn't know that but i'm going to research about that i'm going to learn and this is why i'm going to uh repeat something that i've been saying a lot learning i learned something growing up in mexico i had to unlearn that when i came here in order to relearn it again just because I'm a teacher, that doesn't mean that I have all the answers and exactly. I got things uh, figured out. But I think it is important that if students are able to see how vulnerable, how scary it is for me to be up there in front of them, they're looking at me. And I think it's a first step because we're modeling being that being vulnerable. Well, you said yesterday in your session about how you feel the imposter syndrome. Yes. Right? And that's part of that vulnerability, I think. I think a lot of us have probably felt 
the imposter syndrome a lot of times. I, as a non-native Spanish speaker, teaching heritage kids, have to confront my privilege all the time. And I have to develop relationships, relationships of trust. And I have to be very, very vulnerable in front of my uh, heritage students. If I'm not, they don't respect me or take me serious, right? Because they say, who is this white man teaching me my language? So I have to come from a place of opening up, right? So it's, that's critical importance. So any parting words as we close out here? You guys had a wonderful session. Uh, any parting words? We can go around the table for teachers listening to this podcast. Takeaways. I would, you know, I would say for parting words, continue to make change and continue to integrate. Continue to integrate the curriculum, your classroom. Um, there are a few hashtags that are coming to mind. I'm thinking on Twitter, you know, hashtag educolor, um, hashtag interculturalism, maybe I'm kind of making that one up, interculturality. Um, but continue to integrate and make it a consistent practice um, because consistency is the key to change. You can't just, well, I'm going to drop, you know, a little nugget here and then I'm going to do that, you know, later on, but continue to integrate and be the change. What, isn't there a quote, like, be the change you, you want to see I believe in the world? Thank in the you. World. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I am going to quote a tweet that I was not expecting that it'll go so viral, so popular, but paraphrasing myself, wouldn't be wouldn't it be amazing if us language educators taught our students to be proud of speaking Spanish in the United States to connect with the communities here from underrepresented groups? instead of perpetuating the stereotypes about us or how to be a better tourist across the Atlantic. I think that's uh, my big uh, takeaway, and I hope that uh, if you're listening to this, if you are a white educator, or if you're teaching Spanish as a second language, you understand that you are creating opportunities for students to build bridges, not walls. Be that person, don't be afraid, and let's keep asking questions. I would say that teaching, teaching is political. Um, it's a political choice that you make when you're in the classroom and you, for better or worse, you are making a difference in your student's life. And this has to be done for social change, for transformation, because education is the only thing that can really um, change and transform our society. And I'm going to use uh, a, a word from my mom. Just one of the, to me is the most beautiful word in Spanish. I know that's for up for debate, but that the word is susurro, and susurro means whispered. And I always loved my mom using that word, saying, "I'm going to susurrar, uh, voy a susurrar a tu oído." And I'm going to whisper into your ear. And that soft sound of her voice went through my ear and it showed me love, but just with the sound. So as a language educator, that's what I'm doing every single day. I'm susurrando. 
I'm whispering into the ears of my students. I'm whispering to them the love that I have for them as an educator I have for them. And I'm also whispering opportunities to see themselves from a different place. And this is moving. Atfel, it's moving. And I don't know if it's a revolution. I don't know if it is a movement, but I know that is an ongoing questioning and curiosity for change, for understanding who we are. And I understand my privilege as a 26-year experience educator who have navigated from schools that did not allow any piece of my identity to show, to be now on a school, and I have to shout out to Belmont Day School, that is the first school that allowed me after 20 years to be my full, complete self and allow me to question my curriculum. And I know that there are many educators that do not have that privilege. But by you starting to ask your own questions of how you challenge your curriculum and understand who you are and what are you teaching every day, you're already creating an opportunity. You are already changing the frame. And you're listening to What in the World Language Podcast.